All right, flip to Colossians chapter 1 this evening. Colossians 1, 21 through 29. Christ in you will be what we talk through this evening. As we continue our series, Preeminence, Christ in you. Let's stand together for the reading of God's word. And I'll pray, and then we will look at our text. Colossians chapter 1, verse 21. These are the words of God. And although you were formerly alienated and enemies in mind and in evil deeds, but now he reconciled you in the body of his flesh through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith firmly grounded and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and I fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions in my flesh on behalf of his body, which is the church, of which I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God given to me for you so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God, that is, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose I also labor, striving according to his working, which he works in me in power. Let's pray. Our Father and triune God, give us humble, teachable, and obedient hearts that we may receive what you have revealed and do what you have commanded. Through Christ our Lord, we pray, and amen. You can be seated. I want to begin tonight just by reviewing the historical situation as well as review what we looked at last week in the Christ hymn. Uh, remember that the Apostle Paul writes this letter from prison and he does so to a group of Christians that he's never met, to people he's never met. Though suffering quite a bit for the gospel, Paul is delighted and pleased with what he's hearing about them, about these Christians. When writing, he is not uh, diffident. He's, he's not holding back from telling the truth. Uh, he's not shy about that at all. He just kind of lays it out there. This is what Epaphras has told me. Remember, Epaphras had established a Christian presence in Colossae, putting this ecclesia into order. And from there, he reported back to Paul the various circumstances that the young church faced. And as we discussed, there was a Colossian heresy pertaining to syncretistic religious beliefs and practices. And those things were, of course, something that threatened the Christians there. Uh, compromise is very, very easy when discipline is slack. Temptation for these Christians lurked around every corner due to the cultural and religious pluralism of the, re of the uh, re region. Uh, that's a temptation for any culture that is steeped in idolatry. It's a temptation for any Christian to want to just validate whatever the main narrative of the culture is. To, to live differently is a very, very tough call. It requires discipline. And again, compromise is something that's very easy to do when discipline is slack. So Paul wants them, these Colossian Christians, shored up and steadfast. Additionally, the call of King Jesus, we know, is a call of, of, of exclusivity. There is to be 
one Lord, and that is Jesus, no one else. Jesus does not permit other gods to sit on the shelf because the shelf belongs to him. When, when cultural pressure mounts, steadfastness, patience, and joy, that's verses 11 and 12 of chapter 1, those things are required of us. And uh, I can't think of anything more than our current cultural situation coming out of what we've come out of for the past couple of years and knowing that steadfastness and patience and joy is something that is definitely part of the recipe for, for Christianity. Also, a little tenacity and a little bite might help as well. That's a different topic, though. So, all that to say, in other words, idolatry must be avoided. That's partly what he, why he's writing to them. Idolatry must be avoided. There is no place for it in the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Christ demands all of you. He demands all of you, not just part of you and not just part of your time. Now, Paul's letter to the Colossian Christians was intended to sort out the theological and philosophical milieu by demonstrating the sufficiency, the priority, and the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Remember, he is the image of God. He's the firstborn or the eldest son of creation. In him, all things were created, he says. He, they were created through him and for him. So Jesus was the one who spoke the word in, world into existence. Uh, it was created by him. It was created through him as a vehicle of the, of the triune God working together to make all things. And the goal of it all was Christ himself. So the entire creation order exists to serve the Son of God. Everything in our world exists to serve the Son of God. The one who was before all things, and thus he's the one who holds all things together. Now, bringing his people together in covenant, the Father, having rescued us from the authority of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his Son, of the Son, remember, possessing redemption and forgiveness of sins, no less, powerful thing indeed, the Father has established Jesus as our head. He is the head of the church. He is the head, and we are the body. We are the church, the people of God. So his Christ's substitutionary death, we know, secured payment for sin, satisfying the wrath of God, and being the firstborn from the dead, Christ has established the new creation order in the world, which is to say, here, here's my definition of eschatology, um, eschatology is simply us currently living in the age to come. <laughs> we, have, we are living in that age now. Christ has established it. The future age of resurrection glory has interposed in time and in space, restoring creation step by step, bit by bit, person by person, institution by institution, until the last enemy, the last enemy, of course, death, until that last enemy is finally footstooled. Uh, I was Gramsci, the uh, Marxist, who said that you know, we're marching through the institutions. And yeah, that's, that's actually Jesus' uh, modus operandi. He, he, that's, our, that's what we're supposed to be doing, too. So step by step, bit by bit, resurrection glory is unfolding in the world. Now, consequently, on Easter morning, the world is different. The world is different because there's a tomb that sits empty. And that tomb, still over there today, is still empty. There is a body that was there. It's not there anymore. And Paul's desire is for us to live in light of that reality, to live in light of that truth. The people of God, including us today, need to remember. We have to remember that, the, that we, are, uh, we are caught up in this cosmic drama he zoomed out to talk about this Christ 
this magnificent firstborn of all creation, the firstborn from the dead, beginning, middle, end. He's everything. This cosmic drama of redemption. And Paul's saying it because we're supposed to know that we have a role in that. That's ours too. It's ours as well. The hymn is to be embodied. The hymn must be embodied. Redemption has been given to you, church. Now it has to be practiced. We've been forgiven so we can forgive others, right? Christ is risen, so now we can go and preach resurrection gospel all in the world. So theology can't be in the abstract and only in the abstract. It's meant to have legs and, and, and to go into the world. So we, we touched on this last week, but creation, fall, redemption, that is, that is reality. So live there. That's kind of what he's telling us. Christ the creator, Christ the redeemer uh, from the fall. Restoration is here. So live there. Live in that because that is the reality of the world. That's the story of the world. Creation, fall, redemption. Let's look at our text again. Colossians chapter 1. The flow of the chapter is entirely coherent, but the hymn that we just looked at last week is, it was essentially a brief, albeit important, break in the letter. Um, it's as though Paul got to the redemption and forgiveness of sin's part in verse 14, and he couldn't contain himself. He couldn't help but zoom out and deal with the cosmonomic ramifications of the person and work of Christ. It's like he's, he's talking to the church. Christ has redeemed you, dear church. Speaking of Jesus, let me tell you something. And then he zooms out and says, this is Christ. This is who we worship. So coming out of this hymn here in verse 21, which is an indicative, and it's intended to anchor us in truth, Paul reminds them that as Gentiles... In verse 21, they were formerly alienated and enemies in mind and in evil deeds. You were. I was, right? This cosmic drama pertains to you. It pertains to all of us. We are not detached from this grand cosmological redemption. Before Christ's reconciliatory efforts in, in saving us by the gift of faith given by the Spirit. Before that, we were haters of God. We were haters of God. Before Christ, we hated Christ. Sinners loathe the God whose image they bear. And in this state of depravity, holiness is completely foreign. It's an incoherent concept. Talk to, talk to any unbeliever who, who's living in utter animosity toward God today. Holiness? Are you kidding me? Indulgence, that's what I'm after. But that's what happens. Before Christ, we hate Christ. Before Christ, we don't live for Christ. Before he intervenes, we live for ourselves. So holiness is not natural. It's not natural for us to want to live for God and obey his commands. What is natural, what is of our nature, is to hate God, to be at enmity with God. And here, Paul makes this wonderful connection for us. Corruption, let me say that this way, corrupt minds leads to corrupt deeds. Notice what he says here. You were alienated in mind and in deeds. Note the connection. Uh, that's why natu the natural law of Thomism is a problem because our minds are actually corrupt too. Uh, it was Thomas Aquinas, he believed that man's reason was unscathed by sin. Like everything else was a problem, but not man's mind, not man's reason. And that goes completely contrary to basic Reformed theology and I would argue scripture. But man apart from Christ 
is totally depraved. He's sinful in every single aspect of his being. Every aspect of our nature and being, apart from Christ, is dead. It is dead in disobedience and alienation. As one writer said, I thought this was rather interesting, uh, he, he talked about us being, we are the glory of God. Man is the glory of God. We are made in his image, absolutely. But we're also the garbage of the universe because of our sin. Both of those are true. The glory and the garbage. We sullied the creation and brought the entire universe into condemnation. Our sins alienated us from the holiness of God. Um, our sins plunged the world into sin and reckless behavior and ruin. The enmity man has with God is always expressed in debased thinking and evil practices. So it's not just that our minds were broken, but it's flowing out of that. A heart that is bent on deadness and sin leads to deeds that are done. So we, apart from Christ, were alienated. We're the ones that uh, destroyed the created order. But now, he says in verse 22, but now he reconciled you. The creator and sustainer became a man in order to redeem men, to put an end to the hostility, to declare peace in the midst of strife, to establish the light of victory in an inexorably dark and wicked world. If Christ has reconciled all things like he said he did in the hymn before us, uh, if, if that's true, in principle, he has reconciled all things, then his people are certainly included. Realigning the broken world, Jesus in the body of his flesh, through his substitutionary death, has presented us holy and blameless and beyond reproach. That is in verse 22. So the ugly is now beautiful. The sinful is now righteous. The damaged is now repaired. Thanks be to the imputed righteousness of our Lord. So Paul is arguing here, we have new life. Now we must live in new life. You have new life, so now you need to live in new life. And that's what verse 23 tells us. Persevering in the faith is a promise, but it's also a command. We are commanded to be holy, to continue in the faith, firmly grounded and steadfast, not moving away from the hope of the gospel, which you have heard. But there is a promise of perseverance because there is a provision, a provision of perseverance, and that is the grace of God. So we begin with grace. Our lives begin with grace. I mean, even in our state of enmity, there's grace made in his image, born in this world. But we begin with grace, we continue in grace, and then we endure for the sake of grace. Peter O'Brien, he paraphrases the verse this way. He says, at any rate, if you stand firm in the faith, and I'm sure you will. That's what Paul is saying when he says, look, if, if you continue in the faith, sort of rhetorical in that sense. So that's the message. By grace, you must persevere in your life. And by grace, you will persevere. That's the doctrine of perseverance of the saints. So God, God doesn't give people dead faith. God doesn't leave his people to themselves. There's grace in it. We, 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 that's the air we breathe. That's what we do. So the gospel given to you must be maintained by you. But it's not totally up to you entirely. You have the Holy Spirit in you. You must work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You must persevere, and you will do so with the assurance of God's love. And why? Well, God finishes what he starts. God finishes what he starts. And why wouldn't you persevere if that's the case? You've been acquitted of all charges 
Be holy because you are holy, right? Be sanctified because you are sanctified in Christ. Live faultlessly because you are faultless in Christ. I love John Trapp. He said, when faith bears fruit upward, it will take root downward and make a man as a tree by the riverside and not as the chaff in the fan. So the covenant is meant to create a holy people in Christ. And as we'll see, Christ is in you. Before coming back to this teaching, the apostle takes a brief, albeit important, excursus. Paul, in verse 29, he's labored, he's suffered, he's endured, um, he's strived for the sake of the gospel, no doubt according to his working, which he works in me in power. That's how he ends this section. So Paul has exemplified godly stewardship as it pertains to gospel ministry. He's suffered a whole lot, shipwrecked, bitten by a snake. He has been beaten, bruised, kicked out of every place he ever walks into. It's, it's amazing. Look at verse 24. What's his response? Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and I fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions in my flesh on behalf of his body, which is the church. His tenacious preaching has resulted in all sorts of afflictions, eventually ending in his own execution and his own beheading, presumably by Nero's order. Side note, I was telling my kids about that today when I went to Rome. There is a prison cell that you kind of, you walk in and then you got to go down a little bit into the dungeon. And that's the traditional site of where Paul and Peter were uh, held before they were executed. Um, Paul beheaded and Peter crucified upside down. Pretty solemn experience, by the way. And it's completely dark. They have a light in there, but you turn it off. I mean, you're underground. It's very, very dark. But that's where they would have been held beforehand. They had suffered much for the sake of the gospel. But this language here is very, very confusing here in verse 24. Does Paul mean that Christ's afflictions and his atonement isn't sufficient and that we must suffer in order to make it more efficacious? The answer is no. (laughs) That's not true. Think of it this way. Given the overlap of the ages, the new age, the new age to come that was promised beginning on Easter morning, and then the end of the old age in AD 70, there was this expectation during this overlap, there was this expectation of birth pangs and trials, uh, the messianic woes. The atonement of Christ, we know, was finished. Um, he even said on the cross, tetelestai, one Greek word, it means it, it is finished. He, he, it was done. The atonement had been made. Sins have been forgiven. That's the place where sins are forgiven. Christ and him crucified. But the ramifications, though, of that crucifixion were still in force. So Paul, ha- Paul himself has filled up the afflictions by experiencing the afflictions himself as a consequence of preaching the gospel in a dark world. So in Paul's mind, this is what he's, really, what he's getting at. The church is suffering. The church is suffering during this transition time, if you will, Uh, The church's suffering is filled up in his ministry as the word is established. So he's not thinking that Paul's, the Christ's atonement wasn't totally efficacious in forgiving your sins. You have to suffer a little bit on your own behalf and then that contributes to it or something. No, 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 no. He's talking about the afflictions of Christ, which was the very thing that established this new creation order in the world in his death and resurrection. There was still an ongoing 
problem of affliction and suffering. And Paul had endured a whole lot of stuff for it. And he, it's filling up in him on the behalf of the church. He's suffered for them, to, for people he's never even met in Colossae. So gospel preaching invariably involves suffering, much like surgery may require a scalpel. The head has suffered on the cross. The body must and may suffer from time to time. And that is the consequence of worldwide renewal. The com- consequence is taking the light into the darkness. The darkness doesn't really appreciate it. And you could say it this way, the old sinful world is not quickly dislodged from its desire to rule. That's when suffering comes, is when you take the light of the gospel into the darkness of sin, there's, it kinda, you kind of butt heads. Being a minister, he says in verse 25, according to the stewardship from God, Paul is on a mission to fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. The word of God is to be laid out like a carpet in the world. That's kind of the idea here. It's to be proclaimed. It's to be rolled out for everyone to see. Preaching is a means to this end. People need to hear, and if the word of God is to have its effect, it must be proclaimed. It does no good for the church to keep that gospel message to itself. It has to be sent out into the world. It has to be proclaimed. And that's the whole point here. An inscripturated word must be a preached word. The Bible was given to us not just so that we could do our quiet time, though you should be in the Word and and, and doing those sorts of things in the Word of prayer, Word of God in prayer, but it's also there to be preached. It's to be proclaimed. It's something that we send out into the world as ambassadors of Christ. So it must be turned loose on the world. And in verse 26, we find the, the preached Word is revealed. It has revealed a mystery he says, which has been hidden from the past ages and generations. This is not the Gnostic mysticism, which taught about secret knowledge and mystery, and that's how you, you know, can escape the world, that sort of thing. But rather, this mystery is the unfolding of redemption, which was once fuzzy and unclear, but it's now been made very clear. And that's the thing about Revelation. Revelation makes things clearer, not fuzzier. God has made known, verse 27, what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles? What is this mystery among the Gentiles? Which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That is the mystery. The mystery of God's covenant plan to incorporate the Colossian Gentiles into the grace of salvation is revealed to be, this mystery is actually a person, and this person is in you. They were former enemies, but God reconciled them in Christ. And this suffering that's happening to Paul and the Colossians is actually part of the plan of God's unfolding redemption. The coming of Christ was the opening up of the heart of God to all the nations. And it was to go forth, and it was to bear fruit, and it was to multiply. He's already used that language earlier in the chapter. We saw that a couple weeks ago. So they were, they were former enemies, God has reconciled, reconciled them. And that suffering that is happening, that is part of the plan. The coming of Christ opens up the heart of God to the nations. And in verse 28, it is him we proclaim, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. Gospel preaching isn't just talk about Christ. It's not just talk about Christ. Gospel preaching is giving Christ. It's giving Christ himself. 
And the aim of this ministry, this stewarding of the calling here, in verse 24, it's joyfully suffering. Verse 29, it's working hard. In verse 28 here, it's faithfully proclaiming Christ. This is how we steward Christ in us. Laboring hard, joyfully suffering should the occasion arise, and proclaiming Christ. And, it, and the goal is for every man to be complete. That's why I had Steve read Ephesians 4. The goal is the maturation of the church, sanctified in Christ. That's the aim. We want everyone maturate, uh, to be matured in Christ. Proclaiming Christ, that's evangelism. And then you admonish and teach Christ, that's correction and warning and imparting learning and discipleship and, and so on. Using wisdom found in scriptures, all of that is what matures the church. That is the process. To be, you could say, to be gospelized. To be gospelized is to be brought forth into the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Gospel people on a gospel mission with gospel discipline. So God is at work in the Colossians. He's at work in Paul, and thus he is, Paul is to be in, at work as well. And of course, so are we. So like it or not, if I could just sum up what he's getting at here. Like it or not, we're involved in the cosmic battle for the reconciliation of all things. Because he speaks in the past tense. Christ has re reconciled everything. He's reconciled all things. And then Paul kind of zooms out. Well, you're in this battle too, guys. And uh, we're preaching the word in the world. taking Christ is in you, and he's in you. And then we're going out with, with him. And that's the plan. So, as we often ask, how shall we then live? I have, uh, I've always had a good sense of direction, <laughs> and I think I get it from my father. Um, being able to discern your surroundings, uh, you can recall to mind certain signage, um, buildings, and road markers. Uh, being able to do that is, is key to making your way to your final destination. And of course, you know, back in my day, they didn't have cell phone directions. And I think that's made us dumber, by the way. We sort of miss everything that's going on. Just turn left, turn right. You know. In one sense, the Apostle Paul writes in order to help the Colossians with their navigation. That's really why he's writing. He's emphasizing somewhat exhaustively that Christ is the true north. Christ is the true north. And what do we mean by Christ being the true north? Metaphorically, we use that phrase to describe someone's course in life someone's course in life as a journey. We liken it metaphorically. You're, you're on this walk. You're on this journey with the Lord Jesus. And when we talk about a true north, we're saying that someone, he or she, needs to be able to go in the right direction. So we're talking about a journey. We're talking about direction, destination. That, that's kind of what Paul is doing here. With Christ being the beginning and the end, he is both the foundation and the destination, right? everything's in him, everything's through him, and everything's for him, beginning, middle, and end. And the destination, think of it this way, the destination in one sense is the Father, Christ is the road we're traveling on, and the Holy Spirit is the car taking us there. That's gospel living, right there. But what happens when we veer off the path? What happens when we stifle the Holy Spirit? and we choose to go our own undisciplined way. What happens? Well, then we've lost our true north, right? Instead of going the way we were supposed to go, 
we've decided to go a different way. We've gone off course. And that is precisely what the Christian church today needs to repent of, going astray from the word of truth in various ways, but especially in the greatest way, perhaps, in our culture by propping up statism, for example, and bowing before its statue. Again, one example among many. Getting a grip on Christ is essential for your sanctification. Remembering that Christ has a grip on you is just as essential. Jesus said in John 10, I give eternal life to them that they may, and they will never perish ever, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And then guess what he says again, right? The very next verse, my father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. Did you know that you're in two hands here? Paul here knows this, and he speaks of the indicative of Christ and the imperative of Christ. Let me explain that. Meaning, indicatives are truths. Ephesians is like that perfectly. It's six chapters. The first three chapters are the indicatives. They are the truths. This is the reality of the situation. This is who Christ is. This is who you are. And when those two things collide, this is the result. That is the truth. Now, and those truths are to be understood. We're supposed to take them in our hearts and our minds and, and know what those truths are. But the imperatives, again, in Ephesians, it's like the last three chapters, imperatives are commands and orders to be obeyed. So you have the truth. That is the indicative. And then the imperative is, well, what do I do now? Now that that is true, what do I do? What am I supposed to do? So why does Paul insert this Christ hymn we looked at last week in here the way that he does? Why? It's just so random, it seems like. And the answer is because realignment is necessary lest we seek a different course. That's why. Because look, look in your Bibles real quick. Look at verse 14. In him in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Okay? Skip to verse 21. And although you were formerly alienated in enemies in mind and evil deeds. It's like the flow of thought is perfectly there, but Paul has to stop and say, you need some indicatives here. You need truths to be understood. And he kind of just squishes that in there, this, these few verses, for this great reason. You see, the, the pursuit of holiness in the Christian life requires us to attend to the means of grace. Think of preaching and prayer and baptism and supper, community, mission, all of these things that God has given to us as a means of grace. The covenant is ours. The law is ours. So pay attention to it. Pay attention to it. That's the road sign here. This is Christ. This is the road you're on. This is who he is, what he's done for you. If you veer away from that, you're going to miss it. You're going to miss the sign, and then you're going to forget. And you think you exist for the sake of yourself, which is not, of course, true. So pay attention to these things. But it also requires us, this pursuit of holiness, requires us to take what we receive in those things and learn how to mature in holiness in light of it. Salvation is by grace. Grace alone, through faith alone. Sanctification is is by the Spirit in tandem with the law that's been written on your heart. So the Word gives us the truth necessary to navigate life. The Word gives us the truth necessary to manage our responsibilities in the home, at our jobs. The Word helps us tend to our work, you name it. 
The word equips us to be complete in Christ, to stand firmly grounded and steadfast, no matter what the world throws at us. The word is a means to keep us in the car and on the right road. The Puritan Thomas Goodwin, he, he gives us insight here. And I, it's so funny because I have this bookmark and with this quote on it. And I've seen it a million times, but I saw it differently this week for some reason. It was just random. But Goodwin said, God being so glorious a God, we are to do all to him and for him and obey him in all and make him the end of all, which is called glorifying him. This is a great quote. And it just kind of hit me between the eyes this week. Studying. So we must be holy because God is holy. That's Leviticus 11.44. We are told and commanded, be holy, based on what? Because God is holy, right? Holiness comes from God. Holiness, then, is simply becoming who God has made you to be in Christ. It's the most basic definition. Becoming who God has made you to be in Christ. It's growing up into the full stature of Christ, Ephesians 4.13. It's ascertaining truth and, and, and aligning with truth, with blood, with sweat, with tears, if necessary, sparing no expense in the pursuit of Christ-likeness. And my question for you is, would anybody be able to see from looking at your life that you're utterly resolute and growing in holiness? And not just like, do people see you read your Bible? Not, not that. Are you exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit? Is it observable? Do people see your repentance? Especially, I think of in the home with parents and children. Are you modeling repentance for your kids? Would they, would they say that this is your heart's desire to, to live for Christ? Would, would your spouse say that about you? That it's what you long for most. See, Paul says here in verse 29 that he has labored. And uh, that word labor literally means agonizing. He's agonized as though he was in an athletic competition. He has labored. He has been through agony for this purpose, he says. This purpose. The purpose of presenting men complete in Christ. So are you, dear Christian, striving even unto agony, pain, and affliction for completeness in Christ? Are you longing to know him more and more so that you can be like him more and more? The hope of glory is Christ in you. That's the hope of glory, he says. He's in you, and he's present with you by virtue of the Spirit's presence and work in your life. Are you striving with Christ? Are you striving against him? Painstaking sanctification is the call of every Christian. That could be a good book title, Painstaking Sanctification. That's the call of every, of, of every Christian. Holiness is not easy. There are bumps along the way. There are mountains to climb. There are wolves to eliminate. There are bruises to acquire. Holiness is tough stuff. And as Christians who have been changed by Christ, we must be actively rooted in Christ as Christ is in us, and we need to be resolute about it. See, Jesus took on a human body. He bought our freedom and he sent his spirit to dwell in us. And now we embody Christ as living stones making up this giant temple. And this temple, like Ezekiel's vision, grows as the spirit works in the world, filling us and creation with the gospel of deliverance. As I mentioned earlier, the hymn must be embodied. We don't live in the platonic world of ideals. 
we, we live in the world where the Creator God has responded to man's sin by sending His Son in order to reconcile a people and establish His kingdom. That is the world we live in. And people can suppress it and try to fight it all they want, all day long. They're doing it 24-7 in our universities. They're doing it all over the place. In the halls of Congress, you name it. They are trying to suppress that truth, but that is a truth that cannot be squashed. That's the air we breathe. We live in a world where the Creator God who made us in His image redeemed us, answered our sin by sending Christ so He would establish His kingdom. And then the world would be transformed. That's the air we breathe. That's the ground we walk on. That is Christ in you. So redemption is is granted, and thus it must be practiced. Remember that Jesus was described as the one who would not break off a bruised and battered reed because Christ is tender towards his people. He's tender towards us. Uh, He knows our frailties, right? He knows our hurts. He knows our brokenness. That's Matthew 20. Excuse me, Matthew 12, 20. Uh, Richard Sibbs, in his book on that topic, he explains that before conversion, Christ finds us as bruised reeds. That's who we are when he, when, he, when he finds us. We're delicate, we are weak, we are frail, we are infirm. That is the condition before Christ. And yet, Sibbs writes this. He says, after conversion, we need bruising. That reeds may know themselves to be reeds and not oaks. Even reeds need bruising by reason of the remainder of pride in our nature and to let us see that we live by mercy. What a quote. That's our condition. But he upholds us by his grace. We're we're saved. We're, We're brought into his holiness. And yet there's still bruising that happens. And the bruising, he says... Because, man, you don't, want to, you don't want to read that thinks he's an oak tree. That is astronomical pride. So even the difficulties that Paul endured, the difficulties that we may endure, those are things that Christ does in order to present us holy. Grace and mercy is the condition of salvation, and grace and mercy is the consolation of sanctification as well. It's the comfort. Christ bruises us in order to mercifully demonstrate that we are fully dependent upon him. So as we achieve more and more holiness, sometimes holiness, uh, it's a, it's a, your, the direction's going up, but sometimes it just looks like a swirly mess. One step forward, two steps back, five steps forward, one step back. As we do that, though, we remain vigilant in safeguarding this deposit that we've been given. This self-discipline is self-government. It spills into the family, into the church, into the world. That's the logic. And it isn't easy, but it is simple. It isn't easy, but it is simple. Uh, holiness, some of us were talking about calculus earlier. Terrible thing to discuss. <laughs> but we were talking about how we, you, know, you learn something as advanced as calculus, and most everybody doesn't really use it. Holiness isn't like figuring out calculus. Holiness is not easy, but it is simple. It isn't effortless, but it is tiresome. But we have Christ in us, the hope hope of glory. We are holy in his sight. We are without blemish. We are free from accusation. Our old nature is dead. Christ in you has freed you. And thanks be to God for the work of his son. So labor well, friends. Agonize over your sin. 
putting those deeds that once alienated us to death, agonize over the world, uh, agonize over the word, uh, agonize over what Christ has called us to, knowing more and more who he is, what he requires of us, and know that there is strength and power in Christ. If only we would cry out to him. I'll leave you with this. If there is no blood, sweat, and tears in your walk with Christ, then you may not be walking with the Christ whose blood, sweat, and tears were given for you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this, this letter that the Apostle Paul has written and that you have preserved through the ages. This Holy Spirit-inspired work, there's a lot to learn, a lot to be challenged by. So I thank you for it. I thank you for the gift of your inscripturated word that we could read it and understand it and know that we are reading your revelation. But as we think through this concept of, of Christ, this reality of Christ in us, what a, what a marvelous thought to ponder. The God of the universe taking up residence in us. I pray that you would strike us, strike our minds with that reality. Help us to, to truly labor um, in this world with what you've called us to. To agonize, yes, to labor, to strive, um, to run the race. All these metaphors were given. Um, Lord, would you strengthen us by your spirit? Help us, we pray in Christ's name, I pray. Amen.